0: In this letter, Paul clearly talks about the wrath of God. And I need to ask you to work hard with me this morning because we have to consider some tough concepts and multiple related ideas. So in a lot of the sermons that we've done in Romans, there's kind of been one main point and there is one main point today with like five main subpoints. So I need I need you to work with me along the way to fill out what Paul means when he's talking about the wrath of God. We we have to do this work because I think many Christians ignore the wrath of God completely. Or they look at the text that we're about to look at and they extract it from Romans and from the larger story of the Bible and wield it in unhelpful and ultimately, I think, ungodly ways. So I want to show you how this text fits into the larger book of Romans and into the larger story of the Bible, but that's going to require some extra work from us this morning. So Paul began this letter with a precise assertion of the gospel of God. The gospel is the royal announcement that the resurrected Jesus is the messianic king. This announcement of Jesus' kingship is the mechanism by which God will bring about salvation in the world. So that's how Paul has started the letter. And in those verses, especially Romans 1, 16 and 17, you'll notice that he doesn't define or describe salvation or the righteousness of God. And that should raise a question in our mind. He's using these terms, but what do they mean? Well, in the next section, he does describe their opposites. He describes unrighteousness and the wrath of God. So by comparing these descriptions with the terms salvation and righteousness will be able to broaden our conception of salvation. We'll see that our conception of salvation is expanded beyond God's rescue just from a sort of a final judgment, but also from unrighteousness itself. So we need to pay careful attention to Romans 1, 18 through 32 to get there. So we'll do that by asking five questions about the wrath of God. What is God's wrath? What causes God's wrath? How is God's wrath being revealed? Um, And then finally, so I guess only four questions, what is the ultimate outcome of and the implied solution to God's wrath? So four questions that will help us see this. So let's begin. What is God's wrath? I told you you're going to have to track with me because now we have a set of five major sub points to help us understand what God's wrath is. So let's start by defining what wrath is. Generally speaking, wrath is a state of relatively strong displeasure or a strong indignation directed at wrongdoing with a focus on retribution. So when the word wrath appears, it's referring to indignation and retribution, um, In the New Testament, we hear this term over and over again. And sometimes people are told not to express wrath. And sometimes wrath shows up in conjunction to God and his action. And that's the case here. So then we need to move to the next level in our questioning of what God's wrath actually is to consider whether God's wrath is one of his attributes or if it's just an action of God. Okay, this is a little bit nuanced, but it's really important. God's wrath is frequently but incorrectly listed as one of his attributes. So you may have memorized in a Sunday school class or in a Bible class at college that a list of God's attributes, and you might have wrath on that list. You need to cross it off that list. It cannot be an attribute because God's attributes are those qualities of God that are essential to who he is, they're eternal permanent, intrinsic, and inseparable from him. It's not the case that God's wrath is essential to who he is. Neither is it the case that God has always been wrathful. So when we talk about an attribute of God, it's something that's true of him, that can never go away, that's been expressed throughout eternity. It's not true that God has expressed wrath throughout eternity. So one theologian explains, and this is coming from a guy named Christopher Morgan in a book called Christian Theology. So if you want to think about this more, you can borrow that book or pick it up somewhere. He says this, God is inherently holy and just, but not inherently wrathful. Rather, his wrath is his response to sin and rebellion. As his personal, active, and settled anger toward and opposition to sin, God's wrath is an extension of his holiness and justice. Wrath is his holy revulsion against all that is unholy, his righteous judgment that is against unrighteousness, his firm response to covenant unfaithfulness, his good opposition to the cosmic treason of sin. That's a really good definition of God's wrath to hang on to. In other words, wrath is an outworking of God's holiness and it's an essential component to the enactment of justice and righteousness in response to injustice and sin. It's a response or an action. It's not an attribute. It's incorrect to picture the God of the Bible like any number of pagan deities, like Zeus, for example, who's arbitrarily angry and characteristically wrathful. Pagan deities can be described that way, but the God of the Bible cannot. Now, this is important because non-Christians, and sadly even some Christians, describe God as an inherently wrathful deity. Worse, some wrongly picture Jesus' atoning sacrifice in this way. They see an angry, wrathful Father God Pouring out wrath on a loving son. That's not the biblical picture. The misattribution of wrath as characteristic of God is even further problematic because it can discourage Christians from loving God. Okay? So the way that you view God changes the way you relate to him. And if you see him as inherently wrathful, it makes it hard to love him. So by analogy, consider a human father who's just mad all the time. Is it easy for those kids to love him and draw close to him? No. In a similar way, if Christians only see their heavenly father as inherently wrathful, it makes it difficult to draw near to him with love and comfort and assurance. Using the language of the Bible, we can say that God is love, but you cannot say that God is wrath. Do you see the distinction there? God's wrath is a response born out of his holiness and justice. It's not an attribute. Okay, so it's a response to sin. It's not an attribute. So then let's consider how is God's wrath expressed or better in what times are God's wrath, is God's wrath expressed. So I want to suggest that God's wrath takes shape in two primary times. The most common understanding of God's wrath is a projection into the future in terms of a final judgment described as a day of wrath or eternal punishment. So there's a future instantiation of God's wrath, and that's going to be referred to later in Romans, but that's not what's in view in Romans 1:18 through 32. But there is a future wrath of God that's displayed at the final judgment. In our text, a second time frame is in view. It's the present wrath of God. So the wrath of God is revealed presently. In this text, Paul is going to show how God's wrath is actively experienced in the present as people practice unrighteousness. This is a primary way that God's wrath is displayed in the present. God reveals his wrath, by allowing humans to continue in sin and further captivate themselves to its bondage. So bondage to sin, like Israel's bondage to Egypt, is the opposite of salvation. It's the wrath and judgment of God. Hang on to that idea because it will show up later on this morning. So if we've got these big pieces of God's wrath... We might ask, well, how do Christians think about God's wrath or relate to God's wrath or feel about God's wrath? Many Christians have an uncomfortable feeling when it comes to affirming the reality of God's wrath along with the sin that occasions it. So if someone starts talking about the wrath of God or sin, it sort of dampens the mood in the room, might make us feel a little bit awkward. I think that there are two major errors that we need to avoid when it comes to talking about or relating to the wrath of God. The first error is this. Many Christians who wish to be culturally relevant and socially acceptable don't want to affirm God's wrath in any shape or form. Talk about sin and God's wrath sort of pinches the shoes of our culture and has a mood dampening effect on society. And frankly, it can sometimes be embarrassing to say that you believe that God is wrathful against sin. So, for that reason, many Christians downplay this reality. In effect, they write it out of the Bible. The result is that they end up preaching a gospel message that one theologian, Richard Niebuhr, warned us against. He warned that if we erase wrath and sin from the Bible will end up with the gospel being a message about a God without wrath who takes men and women without sin to a kingdom without judgment thanks to the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That, that's the gospel we end up with if we erase the concepts of sin and wrath. In addition, we fail to speak about Reality about our lived experience. We fail to speak truly. We diminish the gospel that reveals God's wrath. I I think people who fall into that end of the spectrum, they're often motivated by a desire for cultural acceptance. They're they're motivated to overlook wrath and sin. Now, I, I don't know where you would fall in that. Maybe you would say, that does not describe me at all but a lot of Christians are tempted to start talking in this way. But there's an opposite error that we need to avoid as well. Some Christians who wish to defend biblical descriptions of wrath and sin misappropriate the way they talk about it. These Christians tend to erase from the Bible the grace that relentlessly shines through God's wrath. So as they pound pulpits and protest with big signs and viciously posts on their social media accounts, they weaponize God's wrath. They go beyond simply affirming it. So in contrast to the first group, these Christians adopt a message of condemnation that's punctuated by an attitude of condescension and self-righteousness. So more than declaring the wrath of God, they weaponize it. So this group might argue that sinners need to be confronted with the bad news before they can even hear the good news, so we need to launch a lot of words of condemnation at them, while conveniently ignoring the fact that Paul starts out with the good news in Romans instead of the bad news. This group might suggest... That God's wrath is coming on everyone who disagrees with their personal preferences while ignoring the actual sin that incites God's wrath. They might adopt evangelistic strategies in which they terrify children into conversion through scare tactics instead of convincing them of the love and the grace of God. So I want to propose a different way forward that avoids both of those extremes. Christians should proclaim the biblical message about sin and wrath, but always with a measure of temerity and fear, knowing that we also are susceptible to God's wrath and that we ourselves are guilty of sin. So, in fact, that's the way that Paul wants us to use this text not to launch it as a grenade against other people, but to recognize our own guilt and sinfulness. So if you read this text in context, you'll notice that by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul is springing a trap on his readers. He's gotten them all to nod their heads saying, sinners are so bad. Yeah, they deserve God's wrath. But in 2.1, he pulls a little bit of a bait and switch and says, you are just as guilty as they are. He does to his readers what the prophet Nathan does to David when he constructs this parable about this awful sinner and David lashes out in judgment against him and then Nathan says, you are the man. That's what Paul is doing to his readers here. He sets his readers up. But this text is not the first paragraph of an evangelistic tract, but a retrospective x-ray revealing the depth of sin and the danger of God's wrath, even among Christians. So we need to attend to it, and we need to avoid acting as if we are the righteous ones, and instead realize that we're just as culpable as any person we might be tempted to leverage this tax against. So instead of stepping into God's throne to render judgment from on high, we ought to look inside at our own hearts and we ought to adopt the attitude of the criminal on the cross next to Jesus who acknowledged his own sin in the justice of his own punishment while at the same time affirming the wrath of God as we challenge fellow sinners to recognize their guilt. And in light of those recognitions, like the criminal on the cross, we must immediately appeal to Jesus for mercy. That's how Paul wants us to use this text not to lob it as a grenade at other people, not to post it on your social media account in response to some sinner who you're pronouncing judgment on, but to see yourself in that text. When we take God's wrath and sin rightly, when we understand it the way Paul's presenting it, then we don't need to be afraid of it. Instead, we can find great comfort in God's holy and just response to wrongdoing. Because in his wrathful response to sin, God is working to set things right in the world. He's working to bring about justice. We can affirm that our holy and righteous God is affronted by wrongdoing and sin, and he will respond appropriately to it. So when sin and God's wrath find their proper place in the larger message of the Bible and in the full story of redemption— They provide comfort for those who have been wronged, but they also give a clear vision of our situation and the possibility of restoration to God. So we need to renew a commitment to a humble and cautious and wide-angle view of God's wrath so that we can live as faithful witnesses to God in the righteousness that's revealed in Jesus. Okay, so that's question number one. What is God's wrath? Question two What causes God's wrath? So here I'm drawing from verses 18 through 24. As I've already explained, God's wrath is his holy and righteous response to sin. So any sin or wrongdoing causes God's wrath. Any sin incites God's wrath. In Romans 1, however, Paul points to the fundamental sin that incites God's wrath. The the core sin, the primary cause of God's wrath is a rejection of the truth about God. Humans reject the truth that God is the creator to whom they owe obedience, gratitude, and worship. That's what causes God's wrath. That's the source. So in verses 18 and 19, he points out that people unrighteously suppress the truth about God even though he has made himself known to all people. And then again, in verse 25, he asserts that their suppression of the truth, their exchange of the truth about God for a lie, is what incites his wrath. He goes on, though, in verse 21, to describe the outcome of humanity's rejection of God that further incites his wrath. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him or show him gratitude. So God's wrath is incited when people suppress truth about God and when they fail to glorify him and when they fail to show him gratitude. Then finally, in verse 25, Paul explains that in the exchange of truth about God for lies, humanity gave themselves over to worshiping idols rather than worshiping God. And you'll notice this term shows up over and over again in Romans 1:18 through 32. They exchanged they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This, this term shows up again and again, and it's important because it's, this term isn't used very often, but it does show up in Psalm 106. And for readers of Israel's scripture, they would have been clued into the fact that this is exactly what Israel had done time and time again. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they exchanged worship of God for worship of idols. I'm going to return to you references to Psalm 106, so keep that in your mind. I, I, a fruitful exercise for you would be to read through Psalm 106, and then read Romans 1:18 through 32, and then go back and read Psalm 106, because you'll see that this is a problem common to humanity. Now, it's not difficult to connect Paul's description of human rebellion against God here to the first depiction of human rebellion against God in Genesis 3. In that ancient story, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and within just a few generations, every sin in Romans 1 was committed. Like Adam and Eve, humanity as a whole has the capacity to know God, but like Adam and Eve, humanity as a whole has rejected God and incited his wrath. So it's our sin, particularly ignoring God, refusing to glorify him or show him gratitude, that incites his wrath. So I want to give you three points of reflection. Because I, I think you still might be hearing this text as something for people out there, not for us. So three points of reflection. First, as I'm trying to argue, this text is primarily for Christians, not for the world out there. Many Christians are happy to talk about God's wrath against certain acts of sin, like sexual immorality. But at the same time that they're judging others for those sins, they fail to recognize how fundamental our failure to glorify God and show him gratitude are to the revelation of God's wrath. So the main thing that Paul is addressing is failure to glorify God and failure to show gratitude. Like Israel, who was mercifully redeemed from bondage to Egypt and were on a journey to the promised land, yet regularly complained rather than showing gratitude to God, many of us Christians who have mercifully been redeemed from bondage to sin and are on a journey to that new creation, we regularly complain instead of showing gratitude. We commit the very acts that incite God's wrath in the first place. So based on the way that Paul arranges this text, he does not suggest that the sins listed later on in the passage are the biggest problem. Instead, the sins of omitting glory and gratitude are the primary issue. Yet it's these very sins that are almost respectably committed among Christians, on the regular, even as we look down on our noses, down our noses at people who participate in sins that we would just deem unacceptable. So we need to be reminded of our need to glorify God and to show him gratitude. Second point of reflection, Paul's identification of humanity's rejection of God as the core cause of his wrath reminds us that the solution to that problem needs removal of God's wrath and its cause. So salvation is wrapped up in removing God's wrath and restoring what's gone wrong. Namely, Suppression of truth about God, failure to glorify him, and failure to show him gratitude. Many times Christians think that the the way to fully embrace our salvation is to pick off the fruits of sin instead of letting God get down to the root, to the core of what's going on. We need a greater salvation than just mitigating the fruit of sin. We need a work of God to go deep in our hearts to tear out the root of our sin. We need new hearts in covenant renewal with God. And this is what the righteousifying, you know, to use our special term, the righteousifying work of God, the salvation work that Jesus is doing is that exact thing. It's removing the core of the problem. Third point of reflection. This text shows us that it's the rejection of God and the ensuing sins that are deserving of God's wrath. It's not the rejection of particular religious practices or disagreement with someone else's personal preferences. Now, Paul is not going to deal with this in depth until later in the letter. But I think that already he's hinting to this divided church in Rome who are upset with each other about practices regarding eating meat and drinking wine and observing certain holy days, that God's wrath is not coming on those things. Those are matters of personal preference. That's not sin. So some Christians, most likely the Jewish Christians, were being judgmental of the Gentile Christians. But in this list, Paul doesn't include anything that they were being judgy about. The lesson here is that Christians must distinguish between sins that are deserving of God's wrath and matters of conscience or personal preference that have nothing to do with God's wrath. And if God is not looking in judgment on those actions... Neither should we. We should not label sin those things that are not sinful. Nor should we be convinced that God's wrath is against those who disagree with us. We should never declare God's wrath and judgment on something that God has not done so himself. So in other words, Christians, we should be, we should avoid being judgmental toward other Christians when it comes to issues of conscience. Or matters that lack biblical clarity. And instead we need to affirm God's wrath on actual sin. The sorts of sin listed here. Okay. So what is God's wrath? What causes God's wrath? Moving forward we ought to ask what does God's wrath do? So we know what it is. We know what causes it. What does it actually do? Here I'm drawing from verses 25 through 31. God's wrath though talked about in a final future judgment in other texts, is described here as permitting humans to go their own way in rejection of God. In other words, the permission to sin is itself the punishment. This is what Paul gets at in verses 24 and 26 and 28 when Paul says that God handed them over to their sinful ways. Now earlier I mentioned that Paul's use of of the term exchanged um, alludes to Psalm 106. Well, now this phrase handed over also alludes to Psalm 106, in which Israel is described as being handed over into exile. So what Paul is doing here is telling us that being handed over to our sin is a kind of exile that's similar to the handing over in Psalm 106. Being handed over to sin is an act of judgment and wrath of God. Yet, because sin infects our thinking, we have a perception problem when it comes to interpreting our being handed over to sin. So what God sees as his wrath, allowing humans to continue in sin, we are inclined to see it as our freedom. What humans see as God's toleration of wrongdoing, God sees as bondage to sin. But the final judgment form of wrath sheds light on the present form of wrath. So so we can see it differently. By allowing humans to further enslave themselves to sin, and by allowing humans to walk on the road of the wicked that leads to ruin, and by allowing humans to further distance themselves from God, the only source of life and glory and joy, we can see that God's permission is his wrath in action. It's a, fine, have your way kind of punishment. It's a, you made your bed, now lie in it kind of wrath. It's a, you complained about not having meat in the wilderness and now quail will come out of your nose kind of punishment. It's an appropriate response to human rejection. God's wrath is demonstrated by letting us continue on in our sin. But then what does that look like? What does it look like when humans keep going on in their sin? It looks like breakdown in human society and flourishing. When we get our way, humanity breaks down to the point that true, loving, and safe community is no longer possible. As humanity is handed over into sin, they become less human, dehumanized, in a manner of speaking. They become incapable of relating to God and to one another. Paul, Paul is going to show us this in two ways, and I, I understand that what I'm about to comment on is very complex, and there's a lot that we could say, but, but Paul gives two illustrations of the breakdown of the community. First, by using the sin of homoerotic behavior as an illustration of that breakdown, and then by giving us a list of sins that destroy our capacity for relationships. So first, he uses homoerotic behavior in verses 26 and 27 as an example of decreation, when humanity abandons God and his original creation purposes. Now, there are many scholars, when they get to this section of the text— who suggests that Paul would be pro-LGBTQ if he were around today. But I want to suggest that a fair reading of Paul's writings affirms the opposite conclusion. For Paul, homosexual activity is sinful. But Paul is not launching in here to talk in depth about homosexuality. This text doesn't say as much as you might think it does in that regard. Instead, he lists This behavior to illustrate the way that unrighteousness resists God's creation purposes and destroys the possibility of community. It's an anti-community practice that reverses God's original creation purposes. So it's designed in part, well, as God designed sexual activity, in part to produce new life, to result in procreation. But homoerotic behavior removes that possibility entirely. Paul is just using this as an illustration to say that when humanity goes their own way, and when they reject God and his purposes, the outcome is not a flourishing society. It's not a fulfillment of that blessing to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Instead, it's an inward self-centeredness. What's more, this illustration And the anti-community theme is heightened when attention is given to the way that homoerotic behavior pairs same sex individuals together rather than opposite sex individuals together. I I think what Paul is trying to say here is that in the very way that God designed creation and relationship, he wants people to find unity and love and joy in the other, in something different, not in the same. So what's required for deep unity and love and joy and peace is not sameness, but otherness. And this message was particularly important for Paul's readers because there was a church of others, of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, and he's trying to tell them, you don't need to be the same to demonstrate the fullness of God's love. In fact, when there's a certain ingrown sameness that's required for love, it's the opposite of the ordered universe that God has created. Paul picks up this thing, this anti-creation theme in verses 28 through 31 when he describes sins depicting relational dysfunction. He lists community-destroying sins that sound like the exact opposite of the Beatitudes that Jesus gave. So in verses 29 and 30, he writes, they were filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, And wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. While it might be fruitful to define each of these sins, we just need to understand what they represent. They represent the breakdown in community, the breakdown that happens. When God's wrath is revealed by his handing people over to sin. So in short, God's wrath presents itself by allowing people to enter into the kingdom of darkness to the bondage and power of sin. Finally then, we're set up to ask the question, what is the result of and the solution to God's wrath? Here's the answer in verse 32. The ultimate outcome is death, especially in terms of relational death. The kind of unrighteousness described here brings death to -to human-to-human relationships as well as to the human-to-divine relationship as we've already considered. And once again, the declaration in Romans 1 b is presented to us. The unrighteous will die by their unfaithfulness. The death sentence terminology here echoes the sentence pronounced in Adam and Eve in the garden, following their rebellion against God. Through their sin, they were cut off from the tree of life. They were cut off from life with God. And every act of sin is an embodiment of that same death. And it's an entry into the way of the unrighteous that ultimately leads to death. So what is the solution? The solution is our one mediator, Jesus Christ. So just as Jesus reveals the righteousness and wrath of God more fully than Torah ever did, he also mediates more successfully than Moses ever could. So we return to Psalm 106. Throughout Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul draws on language from that psalm. That psalm records Israel's exchange of their glory for idolatry. It records their forgetting of God, their grumbling against him, and their ingratitude. It records their imminent destruction by God. Yet Moses, his chosen one, stood before God and turned God's wrath away from destroying them. Then that psalm later records a different moment in Israel's history when God's wrath was poured out against them because of their idolatry and sexual immorality. And in this case, Phineas intervened, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Later, still, God handed Israel over during a time of exile to serve foreign nations. But then he eventually rescued them, remembering his covenant and relenting from wrath according to the abundance of his faithful love. Although God has handed over humans to their sin in his wrath, he's also handed over Jesus for our trespasses. In this other greater exchange, God has given us a new and better mediator, Jesus Christ. If Moses and Phineas were decent mediators in their own day, how much more effective will Jesus be for us? Jesus has been handed over for our sins and transgressions and it's brought about our justifications. So we ought to hand ourselves over to God. We must resist sin. We must walk in the way of righteousness. We must pray for God's spirit to enliven our hearts so that they'll be captivated by Jesus rather than by our sin. We must respond to Jesus with the obedience of faith and in doing so, will find the true statement that the righteous will live by faith and we'll be able to repeat that final verse of Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your mercy on us. We ask that you would remove your wrath from us. We ask that you would turn us away from our sin and not hand us over to it. We rest in the reality that Jesus has been handed over for our transgressions. We repent and we return to you, looking to Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.